This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Tuesdays can get a bad rap. Sometimes the best that can be said about them are that they're just the day that's the furthest from the next Monday. But not Super Tuesday. More than a quarter of the House of Representatives faces a primary race on March 5th, and it also is the starting gun for two high-profile Senate races. And while not all these races are competitive, or even necessary, there are major implications for November's general election, especially in California, Texas, North Carolina, and Alabama. We'll discuss those and more on Super Tuesday, about Super Tuesday, with Roll Call's campaign reporters, Mary Ellen McIntyre and Daniela Altamari. Daniela, Mel, welcome back to Political Theater. Thanks for having us. Let's start with California, the most populous uh, state in the country, uh, 52 House races plus a Senate race uh, all up. Uh, I I don't know. Did you just... uh, Pick, did you just get the short end? <laughs> I don't know how. I know. I know that sometimes uh, uh, th- this can be uh, a cruel math uh, in determining who do, who covers what races. Uh, but in in addition to just being having the most number of house seats, it also has probably the most number of competitive seats, at least concentrated in a few areas. Daniela, let's talk about those those house races that you're covering. Yeah, uh, fascinating. Uh, many really competitive, and you know, some are getting quite nasty. Um, some of these house races. It's also worth noting that California has a different way than than much of the country of holding their primaries. So they're they're nonpartisan primaries, which means the top two finishers, regardless of party. Um, will proceed to November. And um, that's a bit unusual. Um, It can make for some interesting dynamics. Uh, Perhaps um, we're seeing, for instance, in the 22nd district in the, in this, in central California, Um, representative Valadeo is the, you know, incumbent Republican. Um, That's obviously a battleground seat. And um, he faces a challenge from his right and the preferred Democrat, uh, Rudy Salas, who narrowly lost the last time, um, is facing a challenge. I'm not sure if you could say it's necessarily from his left, but a, ch- a challenge or a a uh, fight with another Democrat. And um, potentially uh, the two favored candidates, the incumbent and the, the preferred Democrat, may get iced out. It's, it could happen. Will it happen? We don't know, but uh, it, it is a potential under this under this system that California uses. So uh, it makes for some kind of unusual dynamics that perhaps you don't see in other states. Yeah, and I, I mean, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this podcast and start, you know, with with California, um, you know, is, is that um, again, not not to minimize the stakes uh, for you know, the future of democracy and so forth uh, uh, with the presidential election. But the presidential, ele- you know, primaries at this point are not competitive. Uh, we are likely on a, this glide path towards a rematch of former President Donald Trump and and President Joe Biden. But, you know, this kicks off, you know, a big round of primaries. And California just has so many competitive seats 
Uh, you mentioned the Valdeo seat. Valdeo, you know, is always, you know, from from the get go, has always faced a competitive race. And and then you know we've got a bunch of seats in the Orange County, you know, L extended L.A. area that really, I mean, when you're talking about a you know a house majority of of just a handful or a few people, every every one of these races is 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 important. Yeah, and and it's true. Um, so much of the country, through gerrymandering or or other factors, uh, there aren't competitive races. So the fact that so many of the races who will determine who controls the house are in California, um, you know, one of you mentioned Orange County, one of the most intense races there is for the seat that is now occupied by Katie Porter. It's a real battleground district, and there's uh, a lot of tension between the two Democrats who are who are seeking that seat. Um, so um, that has really, you know, uh, become very, very ugly in, in a lot of ways as we as we head into Tuesday. And the wild card there, too, is that, you know, Porter is running for the Senate, you know, which is, was, has made this seat open. But the the guy that she beat in in 2022, uh, you know, is is also running. Uh, I mean, he's got a you know, some he's he's not maybe the strongest candidate, but he has name recognition, which is not nothing. You know, one of these markets. Yep, he's got a lot of money. He's he actually there is another Republican running as well, sort of from his right. But Scott Baugh, the the one that we're we're talking about, this sort of the leading Republican contender, is in pretty good shape because he can watch these two Democrats kind of tear each other apart. And you know, if there's two slots available. The conventional thinking, given the, the makeup of that district, is that one will go to him and one will go to one of the two Democrats. We'll see which one. And you mentioned, you know, Katie Porter, uh, that, that the fact that that was her seat, you know, the fact that there are three House candidates from California running for Senate, it has created a lot of openings, even in districts. The other two districts um, are, you know, very safe for Democrats. But, you know, congressional seats don't open up all that often, right. although maybe this year they're opening up a little more often than they have in the past. But you, you're seeing people who maybe are looking at a, you know, a 20 year career in Congress. If they can win this primary, they'll be shoot in for the general election and then they they sit pretty comfortably for a long time. So it explains sort of the interest in some of these races where you're seeing, you know, eight, 10, 12 candidates um, running for the for the open seats. Yeah, and and again, as you said, the the the, the primary, the way that the California structures their primary, what it's where it's just the top two finishers, regardless of party, uh, you know, move on to November, is has created a dynamic that is not replicated very easily. I mean, you know, Washington and Louisiana also have you know a, a different sort of primary system, but I feel like California, because of just its size and the complexity of the the electorate. Uh, just is is one of those things that's just worth watching, you know, so so much. Yeah, but and you know the, those two, as, as you mentioned, the the you know, the three primary Democrats running for that Senate seat. You know, Katie Porter's got the swing district; she won it in twenty eighteen. Uh, she probably would continue to to win it, uh, but as you said, these Senate seats don't come up that often. Uh, the, this uh, this seat uh, was opened by the you know by the death of Diane Feinstein. And uh, who hadn't held the seat since 1992. And, and, you know, I mean, it just, it's a generational thing. Uh, Barbara Lee's Oakland based seat will likely be a, you know, a Democratic seat. Adam Schiff's uh, Beverly Hills and uh, LA, you know, seat will likely be a Democrat. But, you know, for those people who get those, I mean, they, 
it's it's you're, they're sitting pretty if they want to be there uh, for a while. So let's talk about the Senate race. Uh, I mean, the, the we've we've hinted at it a little bit. Um, the the this is heavily favored to continue to be a Democratic uh, seat, regardless of who finishes in the top two. But I think the conventional wisdom for a while was that you know the that Porter and Schiff had the inside track, that Lee had an outside shot. Uh, and but it would really be a battle for second, you know, second place in the pr- in the primary between Porter and Lee, and then former Dodgers and Padres first baseman Steve Garvey, a Republican, got into the race, and it seems like he is beginning to put a little bit of daylight between himself and Porter, at least if you believe some of the polls that we've seen recently. Yeah, and and again, that's where the California system comes into play because you know normally you'd have you know the Democrats competing for one slot and the Republicans competing for another. So um, this does make for some interesting machinations, you know, where you know Schiff is you know boosting, trying to boost some of the other candidates, and and you know trying to sort of help the Republican take help Garvey take that slot, uh, you know that perhaps would have uh, been won by Katie Porter. But, you know, I guess we just don't know how it's all going to shake out, but it, it is fascinating and it is, um, you know, very unusual, I think. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's 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 shift a little bit to another one of the states that's on the docket uh, for uh, Super Tuesday. Uh, not nearly as populous a state, but there are there's a significant primary there happening. Uh, Marianne, let's talk about uh, this uh, member versus member race in Alabama. Yes. Um, really interesting race here in Alabama's first district. This is the southernmost district of Alabama. And we have come to expect member-on-member races in redistricting years. Two years ago, we saw several of them across the country. This is the first one we've seen this year because Alabama had some off-cycle redistricting after a Supreme Court ruling last year. Um, so we have Alabama representatives Jerry Carl and Barry Moore, who are running against each other in the first district in this primary on Tuesday. And these are two, you know, this is Alabama. It's a pretty ruby red state. These are two conservative members of Congress. Um, They are also not particularly well-known members of Congress. These are not, you know, people that, you know, you are seeing talked about or talking on Fox News or CNN all the time in a normal year. So I think that's sort of a different dynamic here as well. Um, It's been a really nationalized race. Um, If you look at a lot of their television ads, they are focusing on issues that um, are going to get Republican voters riled up that kind of meet core meet issues for them. We're looking at, you know, a lot of focus on the border and how they have both worked to try to control the the Biden border crisis, as, as they've called it. Um, we've seen it starting to get a little bit nasty, um, as, you know, these races tend to do. Um, Carl, in particular, has gone a bit negative on Barry Moore, um, who has sort of shot back and said, you know, if you're going negative, you're not doing well. But argued some back and forth as well. They've gone back and forth um, on taxes and their personal tax history a bit. Um, we've also recently seen... Um, Barry Moore put out an ad this week. He was talking about, I haven't voted for any supplemental funding for Ukraine. Big issue um, amongst Republican voters. But he's sort of arguing if we didn't you know, have this supplemental funding going outside of the country, we'd be able to potentially finance a bridge in the area that really needs to be financed. I was talking to a 
um, political science professor um, in the area who was sort of walking me on some of the history of how, you know, they haven't been able to get local funding for the bridge. People really freaked out at the potential of this being a toll bridge. He's sort of arguing if we don't fund the war in Ukraine, maybe we can fund this bridge um, down here across the bay. So we'll see. Um, Plus his heart. Been... That's, that's how it works in Congress, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's just one of those things that Republican voters, you know, if they aren't supportive of that, they might be, might not be aware of exactly, you know, how these funding, different funding projects work. Um, so I think we'll see, you know, there hasn't been a ton of public polling available. Um, and most people are expecting this is going to be a pretty close race, um, both of their hometowns. So they're kind of core political bases are in this new district. Um, Jerry Carl currently represents the first district, so he's probably a bit more well-known in the district. Um, but like I said, there's been, you know, a lot of both of both of them have been running a lot of ads. There's been some outside spending. We saw um, the Club for Growth recently come in to try to help shore up support for Barry Moore. Um, and the other thing that's sort of interesting here, um, you know, I talked about both of these guys being pretty conservative voter um, members of Congress. Barry Moore is a member of the Freedom Caucus and Jerry Carl is not. Um, and you can see that if you look at how members of Congress have contributed to their two to their individual campaigns through their own leadership packs and whatnot. Carl's support has really come from a lot of Freedom Caucus members, many of whom have supported him. He was campaigning, um, I believe it was last month with Jim Jordan, one of the founders of the Freedom Caucus, whereas Carl's support has come. He got a large donation from Steve Scalise, the majority leader, and other members who are kind of considered to be more pragmatists, like Carl is considered to be, um, and a bit more leadership aligned as well. And also, I mean, uh, not not for nothing in the just the the significance for the next Congress is that part of the reason that the that the that the Supreme Court ordered this, you know, like put in motion at least the redrawing mm -hmm. of the district is because they said that the previous maps uh, violated the Voting Rights Act because the, I mean, uh, with the with the size of of Alabama's black population, the fact that it only right. had one uh, district represented or where there was even a shot for a, a black member or a Democrat to win it uh, was in violation of the law. So this led to some, you know, there was quite a bit of drama getting this, this district, but the result will be one of these men will lose, right. uh, this race and the pickup, uh, in, in the other district that, you know, is created with more, uh, Democrats, more black, uh, you know, members of the population, uh, will likely result in a democratic pickup, which is again not nothing. Uh, no, the, the breakdown is is you know less than a handful of votes separating the two parties in the House. No, and in the second district, this new district um, that is a likely Democratic pickup, there are a lot of Democrats who are running for this seat. Um, Alabama does go to a runoff, so it's potential that you know the top two vote getters, if they don't pass, I believe it's fifty percent. Um, will go to a runoff later this year to decide who the Democratic nominee is. Many of those candidates have put varying amounts of their own money into the, their campaigns in some way. So it's a pretty open but interesting race. Um, there also is a fairly competitive Republican primary there, um, which sort of to me suggests that Republicans do think that they might be able to put up some level of a fight here. But the district is now not quite 50% African-American, but close. So we'll see sort of if Republicans do end up making that a race or if that is, you know, the kind of seat the Democrats can really rely on to be a safe blue seat. 
All right. Let's go a little bit north, but staying in the south uh, to North Carolina. Uh, North Carolina also has new maps. Yes. Um, they, they, they vote. Uh, they're, they're a Super Tuesday state. Uh, they were relatively evenly spit, split, for, especially for a purple state uh, like North Carolina mm-hmm. uh, after the, in the 2022 uh, election cycle. The Republican uh, legislature approved a new map that heavily favors uh, the Republicans, and they're looking at uh, pick, picking up a few seats. Uh, talk about that. The, the dynamic there and what has you know what 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 we might look for uh, as the returns start coming in on Tuesday in North Carolina. Yeah, I mean, right now North Carolina has several competitive seats under their current maps, and I believe it's a seven-seven split. So um, this is definitely like a purple state. There's been you know a lot focused on um, in the last couple of years about you know North Carolina just how competitive is it at a national level in terms of house races for 2024. Republicans are really looking to pick up a lot of seats to help try to shore up and grow their majority in 2024. Three Democrats, um, Kathy Manning, Wiley Nickel, and Jeff Jackson, said they would not run again. Um, in the Under the new maps, their seats were just so – there was really no way for them to win these seats. These are seats that President Trump would have won by double-digit points in 2020. So – there are now, you know, Republican primaries in those states. Um, in the 14th district, um, Tim Moore, the North Carolina House Speaker, looks like he's a pretty sure bet to win the Republican nomination there and go on to, you know, become a member of Congress next year. In the 13th district, it's a much broader primary, lots of candidates, lots of self-funders. Um, North Carolina has a 30% runoff rule. So if the top vote getter does not clear 30%, it will go to a runoff similar to Alabama later in the year. Um, the sixth district, that's the seat that Kathy Manning is not running for again. I mean, just to kind of show how much Democrats aren't competing here is they, after Manning said she wasn't going to run again, Democrats haven't even put up a candidate, um, in the primary for this seat. So whoever wins the Republican primary here is definitely going to Congress. Um, but it's an interesting race. This is, um, I think, you know, one of the ones that has gotten some of the most attention because of who the candidates in this district are. We have former Congressman Mark Walker, who was running for governor until this new map came out. And he used to represent a version of this district in Congress. So he's running for a comeback. You have Bo Hines, who lost um, to Wiley Nickel in the 13th district two years ago in a competitive race. He's backed by the Club for Growth. So he's got a lot of spending, outside spending supporting him. You have a healthcare lobbyist, um, Addison McDowell, who is backed by President Trump. Um, So you have another example here of Trump and the club backing different candidates. And we'll see sort of how effective that um, endorsement will be in this district. And you also have the 2022 Republican nominee in this district, Christian Castelli, who is a retired Green Beret, as well as a couple of other candidates. So these are crowded fields. Um, There are a couple of other open safe seats. We got have the seat that um, Patrick McHenry, the chairman of the um, Financial, Financial Services, Services Committee yeah. mm-hmm. and the Took and the speaker uh, speaker pro tem uh, yes the very first of uh, we've ever had yes and he you know has gotten some attention in the last couple of days it seems that he has seemed to be a little bit freed up to speak his mind in some interviews but there's um, an interesting race to replace him in the tenth district where immigration is really playing a major focus um, between two of the candidates in that seat who are sort of gathering 
some of the most attention. Um, and then the last North Carolina seat that I'll mention is the first district, which under this new map is really the sole competitive district in the state. You have um, freshman Congressman Don Davis, um, who is the Democrat. He's running in Tuesday's primary unopposed. And there are two Republicans who are seeking to challenge him. Um, and I think this race is, you know, sort of an example of a lot of the races that we saw across the country in 2022 when you have a sort of more MAGA-like candidate and a more establishment-type candidate. Sandy Smith, who lost to Davis in two years ago, also lost to his predecessor four years before that, is running in sort of this more MAGA lane. Um, she's known to voters. Like I said, she's lost a couple of races before. You also have uh, more of a political newcomer, Lori Buckhout, who is running against her. She led in one poll that I've seen in this district um, from late January, and she has outside backing from the um, Congressional Leadership Fund, sort of the main super PAC for House Republicans. So we'll see. You know, I think that Sandy Smith has obviously got a losing record here. If she's the nominee, I think there's probably a little bit less hope that this is a seat where they can really be competitive in 2024. Um, but Republicans are really hoping that this could be a potential pickup for them. And if Republicans can hold this seat, it'll be the first time they've held this district in a very, very long time. Yeah. Let's go to Texas. Uh, trundle down uh, I-10 I uh, back back to, to Texas, Daniela. 38 seats, you know, 38 House seats uh, and a Senate race. And, um, you know, I mean, Texas goes, you know, back and forth between, you know, level, different levels of competitiveness. It's gotten more competitive at the federal level over the last few years, but it still tilts Republican. Uh, but what are some of those marquee races you're looking at, uh, in the house, Let's start with the house first, and then we'll talk about the Senate. Yeah. So in the house, there's, there's several interesting ones, um, in Houston, um, Sheila Jackson Lee, who has represented that district for, for decades, um, she decided uh, last year she was going to run for mayor of Houston, and uh, she lost in the runoff to another candidate. Um, but meanwhile, her former intern, Amanda Edwards, an attorney, uh, former city council member, she uh, got into the race. And when Jackson Lee lost the mayor's runoff, she said, well, I'll just run for re-election to Congress. But Amanda Edwards wasn't going anywhere. So we now have a situation where we have the intern uh, challenging her her former boss in the Democratic primary. So, and, and you know, Shakespearean. It, it's fascinating. <laughs> um, and Edwards has really framed her campaign as, uh, you know, voice of a new generation kind of thing. She's significantly younger than Jackson Lee. So that's and one. also has had no trouble raising money either. It seems. Yeah, she, exactly. And Jackson Lee has struggled because, you know, for most of the time she was running for a different office. So, um, so that, that's an interesting one, just kind of a one-off really no, no larger lessons at play, but um, you know, the Senate race will sort of test this idea that Texas is turning purple. Uh, Colin Allred is trying to do what, you know, others have, have tried and, and failed. Uh, he's running against Ted Cruz, but his uh, decision to seek the Senate seat leaves his seat open. Um, and that again, similar to California has just, you know, there's a, a plethora of candidates there, Democrats, because it is a strong Democratic district, um, that are running because it's an open seat. And again, not too many bites of that apple. Um, there are two other interesting open seats, both uh, held by Republicans and likely to 
remain in very likely to remain in Republican hands. Um, Kate Granger, obviously, as we as we know, has decided to retire. So that leaves her seat open. And that's uh, similar to the to the uh, dynamic that Mel discussed in, in uh, North Carolina. You know, the uh, that sort of a ideological battle between the various wings of the Republican Party. You know, you have this sort of chamber of commerce type guy and then you have the more cultural conservative. Um, another open seat in Texas, um, the 26th district, I believe, Michael Burgess, also a longtime member, not running again. Um, and that that has also drawn a large crowd. But among the two sort of top contenders, uh, they are both sort of culture warriors. You have uh, Brandon Gill, who was involved with the making of the 2000 Mules movie um, about election um uh, conspiracies. And uh, so he's, you know, sort of in, in that camp. And then you have the mayor of South Lake, um, which, you know, has a town, suburban town that has uh, sort of gained national notoriety for its war on woke in the public schools and and has become sort of a a um, battleground for some of these culture issues. And then there's uh, some other candidates as well. So both of those open seats, they're likely to remain in Republican hands, but very interesting. And in Texas, it's uh, also runoff uh, if you don't make that 50%. So we'll see what happens. The runoff is until, um, I think, the Tuesday after Memorial Day. So we'll see if we have to wait to see who some of these nominees are. You also have, um, you know, some incumbents that are facing uh, strong challenges, um, particularly, um, I uh, it's uh, Tony Gonzalez, right, <laughs> um, who is come under fire from members of his own party for his vote uh, on, you know, uh, the bipartisan gun control bill. Uvalde is in his district. He voted for that. Uh, he also has taken some heat on border issues. Um, so, you know, he is is facing some challenges. Um, and um, there's also a rematch um, in uh, another sort of close to the border district, uh, Monica de la Cruz and Michelle Valle- Vallejo are running against each other again. Uh, de la Cruz run, won the last time. So we'll see what happens. And and on the Senate side, as, as you mentioned, I mean, like this, uh, the, you know, Ted Cruz is his – his unfavorable numbers are always attract, you know, the attention of of na- the National Party because they they think that they can find a lane. You know, they thought that they had cracked the code with Beto O'Rourke yeah. in, in twenty eighteen, uh, and and O'Rourke, you know, came came just short. You know, I, I think by three points or something like that. He he lost. Uh, but all red needs to get through a primary himself on the Senate yes. side where he's favored, but yeah. still, you know, not, not able to pivot completely to Ted Cruz at this point. Yeah. He's had to spend some money, uh, which, you know, that always hurts, I guess, when you, when you have to, you know, spend money before you're, you know, getting to the main event, you have to spend money in the primary. I think the last poll I, uh, saw had him very comfortably ahead. So I don't think, uh, he'll have any problems reaching that 50% threshold. But, you know, it is still just sort of one more hurdle that you, that you have to face. Um, one, so, uh, Some folks told me, and probably uh, Mary Ellen's heard this as well, I'm sure that, you know, one of the problems in Texas is it, just as you said, you know, you look at it on paper and you think, 
wow, you know, Ted Cruz is vulnerable. We can, you know, turn the state purple, you know, maybe even blue. You know, you look at some of the cities in Texas that are very liberal. But the problem is that there are many people in Texas who just don't vote. And that's the biggest uh, hurdle to the Democrats' hopes of, you know, shifting the calculus there. All right, let's let's end it where where all things should end in Arkansas. <laughs> uh, uh, again, w- possibly the state that demonstrates how politics, uh, how party ID has flipped the yeah. most. You know, in in the 1990s and early 2000s, you had an all Democratic, uh, you know, congressional delegation. Uh, it's hard to even imagine that now, uh, even in the cities uh, like Little Rock. Uh, you know, this is a, a, you know, as you said about Alabama, a ruby red state. I mean, it is hard mm-hmm. to imagine that Bill Clinton came from uh, from Arkansas at, at this point, a, you know, a, a Democratic two term Democratic president. Um, and it's not again, we're, we're not talking about any seat flipping uh, partisan control. But Mel, you there was a race that you're keeping an eye on uh, because of some of internal uh, politics here up on the hill uh, that affects one of the members. Let's talk about that. Yeah, there. There's um, an Arkansas member who I've sort of had my eye on for the last couple of months, ever since if we go back to October, I sort of pivoted away from whatever the campaign trail was looking like back then and covered um, the House Republicans' efforts to elect a new speaker after um, Kevin McCarthy was ousted. And one of those members in particular, Steve Womack, um, he did not vote to oust McCarthy. I think it's safe to call him a, somewhat of a McCarthy ally, but he was a member who voted against Jim Jordan for speaker. As you guys might recall, he was the second um, speaker nominee to go to the process here for Republicans. And Womack was one of the many members, about 20 or so, give or take, um, who voted against Jim Jordan on the floor. And he was one that sort of was like, oh, could he attract a primary challenger here because of this? And he has. A guy named Clint Penzo. You know, I question to how competitive this race could be. Steve Womack has raised significantly more money than um, his challenger, who does have some outside group support, but not quite to the extent of money that Womack reported having. middle of February. So we'll see. You know, it's also congressional elections are weird. Primaries are weird. Um, A fluke could certainly happen here. I think, you know, from folks that I'm talking to, there kind of seems to be a like, yeah, he's got this challenger. Everyone's sort of trying to figure out what it's like. But every great surprise in a congressional election is somewhat usually not foreseen. So I think this is one that, you know, I'm kind of keeping tabs on, maybe not expecting actually too much, but if we're going to see a surprise um, in the congressional elections on Tuesday, this could potentially be it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, when people, you know, ask about races like this, um, you know, like the, 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 probably the best example of the last decade or so was Eric Cantor losing his primary, uh, in, in Virginia in in 2014. And the way that I try to explain to people is that it's not, um, it, it, on, on paper, it doesn't make sense, right. That, that someone who's in a position of authority or has a name ID and so forth, uh, would lose a race, particularly if they're in leadership. Womack's not in leadership, but he is sort of leadership adjacent, right? He's a, he's, he's a former ally. committee chair. Yeah, former yeah. committee chair. And so, and so uh, there's that. And in a situation like this, where it's it's 2024, the 
presidential, you know, contest is not competitive uh, in, in in either the primary stage or the general election stage. There's no Senate race that they're dealing mm-hmm. with. There's no statewide, uh, you know, uh, race for governor or anything like that to bring people to the polls. There's no polarizing ballot initiative and so forth. So these are all things that work you know, to drive down engagement and drive down participation. So when you're talking about, you know, like congressional primaries usually don't get huge numbers, gonzo numbers anyway, in a situation like this where people are like, eh, you know, what's, what's the big deal? It doesn't take that many people uh, you know, a, a few people who are like, well, I don't know, this guy, maybe let's give him a chance. Or maybe somebody's pissed off at Womack. I mean, it just, it, you're just talking about, a, you know, a, a very few votes that change the results in this case. Maybe it's on autopilot and Womack's got it, you know, lined up, but it, you know, just, just ask Sarah Cantor, like he, who had probably never heard Dave Bratt's name before, uh, <laughs> 2014. Um, and, and, and you've got a real result. So that's a, I, I like that as, as the wild card for super Tuesday. Uh, yeah, we should, uh, just, just to recap for everybody, 115 seats in the house in play. That's roughly a quarter of the house of representatives and then two high profile Senate races, Daniela, Mary Ellen, thank you so much for going through this. It's a lot. It's a lot of money, a lot of names, a lot of states, all that. And, uh, you know, and, and it's just the beginning of March. We've got, we've got a few more high profile uh, primaries later in the month in Ohio and Illinois. But we got a little rest uh, for, for the time being where we just, you know, have to go to the State of the Union and things like that. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your thoughts and listeners out there. Thank you for listening or watching. If you're watching on YouTube, please share this. Tell your friends, uh, subscribe, uh, and uh, we'll see you next time.